Would you go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 20 with me? Still marching our way through 1 Samuel. In fact, I've, uh, I usually try to stay about uh, seven or eight weeks ahead of my own study, and so with a big book like this, that usually means that when we start teaching, I'm still finishing up my own study of the rest of the book. And so I've been working on uh, the last couple of chapters over the last couple of weeks here. And uh, after that, we're going to be going into 2 Corinthians. Dustin, I believe, has already started some work on that. So we'll be looking forward to that. But you know, the book of 1 Samuel is kind of interesting because it's filled with a lot of different... Uh, interesting characters, and you could actually, in fact, Dustin and I and some of the elders have talked about this, you could go through the book of 1 Samuel and just do character studies, or you could look at how God works throughout the book, you could look at just the tension between what it is to be a good king like David versus a bad king like Saul, there's so many different ways, and so you could teach through this book multiple times, and almost feel like you've not gone through the book before because of that, and so it's filled with all these different characters, Um, we've looked at some of those. You know, we've got Elkanah, we've got Samuel, we've got Hannah, we've got, you know, Eli and his sons and all that kind of stuff. And as we look at this passage today from verse 20, one of the temptations might be to approach it from the standpoint of the two characters that are involved. In this case, Jonathan and David. And um, you can do that. However, I think as we look at this chapter today, I really think that the, the author's primary purpose is to sort of look at the covenant between Jonathan and David, not just about who they are and their characters, but I believe that the author wants to use this as a way to remind Israel of their covenant relationship with God. One of the neat things about Hebrew is that um, authors oftentimes um, leave clues within the text. It's a very poetic language, and so um, you have to sort of not just look at the words that are there, but look at things like, why did the author say this, or how did he arrange this? And sometimes the authors are very subtle in the way that they do that. And I believe this morning that as we go through this text, I think what we're going to see is that I believe one of the author's intent with this passage today was to use the covenant relationship between Jonathan and David as a reflection on God's covenant relationship with Israel. But you know it doesn't stop there. Because we're told as believers that everything in the Old Testament was written ultimately as a benefit to us as well, God's people. That it might be a tutor to lead us to Christ, which really means that this discussion today is not just about David and Jonathan, not just about Israel and Israel's relationship with God, but our relationship with Christ as well. And I think we're going to see that. I'm going to cover it in, I believe it's five different pieces today. And I'll give you, uh, at the beginning of each one of the sections, I'll kind of tell you what I'm focusing on. The first one is actually in the first 11 verses or so. The covenant between David and Jonathan provided certainty in uncertain times for David. So the covenant between David and Jonathan provided David with certainty in uncertain times. And we'll see how that reflects our relationship with God as well. Think about this. David's life was in danger. And in some respects, he really didn't know why. He was constantly on the run from Saul. Let's look at that. Chapter 20 of 1 Samuel. Let's look at the first 11 verses or so. Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity? And what is my sin before your father that he is seeking my life? He said to him, Far from it. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. So why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. 
Yet David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your sight. And he has said, Do not let Jonathan know this, or he will be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is hardly a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. So David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I ought to sit down and eat with the king, but let me go that I may hide myself in the field until the third evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, because it's the yearly sacrifice there for the whole family. If he says it is good, your servant will be safe, but if he is very angry, know that he has decided on evil. Therefore deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is iniquity in me, put me to death yourself, for why then should you bring me to your father? Jonathan said, Far be it from you. For if I should indeed learn that evil has been decided by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you about it? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? Jonathan said to David, Come and let us go into the field. So both of them went out into the field. So that sets our table for us here. Up until this point, we have at least six attempts on David's life by Saul. We've seen a little bit earlier, a couple weeks ago, that David went to... Jonathan, and they kind of worked out a plan, and Saul basically agreed to let David come back into his presence, and everything looked okay, but immediately Saul decided to return and chase David down again. And so David now is on the run once again, and you see here in this text that he came to Jonathan. He seems a little bit befuddled. What's going on? What have, I, what have I done? What sin have I committed against your father that he would pursue my life? And Jonathan doesn't want to accept it. In some respects, he's, oh, no, 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 everything's cool with Dad. Certainly I would know about it. I'm his son. I'm his right-hand man. He would tell me, and David has to remind him, no, he knows that you and I are pretty tight. And so he's simply keeping things from you. Now, David is gracious here because he says, well, he's just keeping it from you because Saul would know you'd be grieved. You'd break your heart if, if you knew that Dad was trying to kill your best friend. David's being gracious there because Saul was being much more devious about that and hiding it from his son. It wasn't because he thought Jonathan would be grieved by that. He was more convinced that Jonathan had been poisoned by people around him. We see that in other texts. So Saul was hiding it from Jonathan for his own safety or for his own benefit and purpose. It had nothing to do with Saul not being grieved. But again, David is being generous, even to Saul at this point. Instead of attributing to Saul the real reasons necessarily, um, he didn't do that. So Jonathan doesn't really ultimately think that his dad still has a problem with David, but we know that that's ultimately the case. So David comes up with a way to prove this to Jonathan and ultimately determine whether or not Saul really does have an issue with him. So David proposed this test. He basically says, well, there's this feast coming up, and I'm expected to be there in the presence of the king. But it's also a time where I should be back with my family in Bethlehem. So tell you what. You go to the feast. I'm just going to go out here and hide. <laughs> Tell Dad that I'm away to be with my family. And if Saul says, oh, cool, that's all right. All right, then we're all right. But if he gets angry and upset because I'm not there, then something else is going on. Basically, because Saul was trying to kill David. What better way to do it than when he's in his presence? He's tried to do it before. tried to drive a spear through him a couple of times, you know, wants to keep tabs on David. So David devises this plan, and Jonathan says... Good. All right. I understand that. We can do that. If you look at verse 8, go ahead and read that again. 
It says, Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is iniquity in me, put me to death yourself, for why then should you bring me to your father? What we see here in verse 8, David asked Jonathan to deal kindly with him, but he uses some important words in this particular verse. And these are extremely important for our context today. He calls on Jonathan to deal kindly with them. That's an interesting word. It's a, it's a loaded, I see, John, or I see Dustin kind of smiling here, it is a loaded theological word. It's one often used by God. It's the Hebrew word chesed. You can all say it with me. It sounds like you're choking because that's the way they pronounce Hebrew. Chesed. Okay? It's the word that's often translated as loving kindness in the New Testament. I prefer to translate it as covenant loyalty. It's a word used often of God in his relationship with Israel. David also uses another word, covenant, here. And it's because those two words belong together. Because really what what hesed is, is it's a special kind of loyalty and faithfulness to somebody that is secured by a covenant. Now, we've talked about this before. Um, you know, you, A covenant is more than a contract. A contract basically says, you do this and I do this. You don't do that and I get to break it, right? But a covenant is this permanent relationship that's built on a relationship. And it's secured in that relationship. And as part of that covenant, loyalty and faithfulness now is not only expected but demanded. And you remember, David and Jonathan agreed to a covenant earlier. And they are now bound to one another to be faithful and true to one another because of that covenant. And so what you have in this passage is Jonathan agreeing that if my father is still trying to kill you, I will not be faithful to him, but I will be faithful to you because of the covenant. And so what we find here is that David is calling on Jonathan, be faithful to that covenant, Jonathan. Deal kindly with me because of the covenant we have. Express your covenant loyalty to me. And the remarkable thing here is Jonathan agrees. Now we saw this, I think it was last week, if I remember right, where Jonathan, when he made that covenant with David, the sign of that covenant was he took off his royal garments. He gave up his rights to the throne and gave them to David as a sign for this covenant, this loyalty that he would now have to David. So we see this expressed here, in fact, as part of this, you know, David's part in this, it's interesting, he looks at Jonathan here and he says, look, if I've sinned, if I've done something wrong, then you shouldn't even wait for your father to get a hold of me. You should kill me yourself. Because Jonathan is the rightful heir to the throne. And therefore, to be an enemy of his father, Jonathan has the right to take his life. And so he says, David calls on Jonathan, if I've done anything, He's put his hands into Jonathan's life. If, if I've done something, then you take my life. And I would almost imagine at this point that David would probably, if that were the case, if Jonathan had looked at him and said, you know what, you're guilty of X. You're an enemy to my father. I, I'm willing to bet that David would have got down on his knees, dropped his sword, and given up his life at that moment. Would not have fought it, because that's what we see in David. And so he does that with Jonathan here. He calls on them to do it. So we see the depth of their loyalty here, but what's, what's remarkable about this is David at this point is uncertain. That's the way the text starts out. What have I done? I'm on the run. He's tried to kill me six different times. And what Jonathan provides him here through the covenant is certainty. He can rely on Jonathan's loyalty. He has this one friend that he can now rely on. 
this one friend that will be faithful and true to him. How does that reflect God's relationship with Israel? Think about that. God entered into a relationship with Israel, and this covenant secured God's loyalty and faithfulness to Israel, even though Israel did not deserve it. But because God bound himself to Israel with a covenant relationship, he is now, in some respects, obligated to be faithful and true to Israel. How does that reflect our relationship with Jesus Christ, when you think about it? In Matthew eleven twenty-eight, Jesus promised rest and certainty through the new covenant to us. He says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And what does he say after that? I will give you rest. What David needed desperately at this point, he's on the run, he's living in caves, he's in the dirt, he's begging for food, constantly on the run, always looking over his shoulder. What he needed was certainty and rest, and he could go to Jonathan. Is it any surprise that he would do that? David sought out Jonathan here. He's looking for rest and certainty in an uncertain time. So just as David found rest and certainty in his relationship with Jonathan because of the covenant relationship that they had, we can be assured that we find certainty and rest in our relationship with Jesus Christ because of the new covenant that He provides. Let's go on. Verses 12-17, through 17, the covenant between David and Jonathan not only provided certainty and rest for David, but the covenant between them reflected uncommon loyalty. Uncommon loyalty. What do I mean by uncommon? Well, it means it's out of the ordinary, it's unusual, it's even remarkable. And we're going to see that with this relationship. I want you to read verses 12 and 13 with me. Then Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness... When I, have surround, or when I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow, or the third day, behold, if there is good feeling toward David, shall I not then send you, or send to you and make it known to you? If it please my father to do you harm, may the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not take, or make it known to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. And may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. So at this point, Jonathan's loyalty to David was uncommon because he chose loyalty to David over loyalty to his own father. That was uncommon. Think about what he was giving up by doing that. This dude could have been king over Israel, followed in his father's footsteps. But his devotion and loyalty to David allowed him to put that aside. And so he honored his covenant with David over his own loyalty to his father. And then he binds himself with an oath. He basically says... Let the Lord take my life if I don't do that. Let the Lord do to me more so. So basically, his loyalty here was rather uncommon. It was remarkable. But we also see David's loyalty to Jonathan was uncommon because he chose to do something that most kings would not do. Many kings would execute potential rivals to the throne um, as well as their descendants. It was very common. When a king came into power, the first thing he would do is execute anybody else that posed a threat. Well, who do you think that would be? Any descendants of the other king? Maybe the king that he conquered? Why? Because they all have a right to the throne. And so that was standard. In fact, that was even standard among the kings of Israel. Solomon actually executed some of his rivals. So his own son, Solomon, did that. There were also at least six or seven other Israeli kings that did the exact same thing. But what uh, what happened here? If you look at verses 14 through 17, it says, If I am still alive, 
Will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord that I may not die? You shall not cut off your loving kindness, there's that word again, from my house forever, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord require it at the hands of David's enemies. Jonathan made David vow again because of his love for him, because he loved him as he loved his own life. And so what we find here is that Jonathan looks at David and says, David, because of my loyalty to you, will you be loyal to my descendants? Don't do what every other king does. Because again, remember, Jonathan's descendants would be a threat to David's kingdom. And so Jonathan says, express the same covenant loyalty you and I have, the chesed. Express that to my descendants after you. Even when God cuts off all of your other enemies, don't cut off my family. And David actually agrees to it. Why? Because David's loyalty was uncommon. It was remarkable. So he didn't do what other kings would do. In fact, this was actually fulfilled later on in 2 Samuel where David takes a disabled descendant, one of Jonathan's sons, and brings him into his royal court, makes him part of the family. And it's something David initiated. He remembers his covenant with Jonathan after Jonathan is gone. And he asks, who else is there? Who's alive? And they go and they find his son and they bring him in and David makes him part of his royal family and takes care of him. So David made good on that promise. He lived out the chesed because his loyalty was uncommon. It was remarkable. Like David's covenant with Jonathan, our covenant with Jesus also is filled with uncommon loyalty, is it not? Think about Jesus. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 14 with me. Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 26. Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and it is not able to finish it, all who observe it begin to ridicule him. I'll leave that rest of that text for you to read, but what we find Jesus saying there is there is an expectation of loyalty to Christ, that our loyalty to Christ should exceed our loyalty to everybody else, including our family and our children. Now, that's hard for us sometimes to think about, right? Jesus does not ask us to not be loyal to our family and to only be loyal to him. What he says is that our loyalty to him should be that so much greater than our loyalty to our own family. If you can think about that, what's your loyalty to your kids or, or you know, to your spouse? Okay? It should be fairly high. In fact, I would argue it should probably be fairly remarkable. But Jesus says, your loyalty to me should even go beyond that. Which means sometimes you have to follow Jesus when even your own family doesn't want you to follow Jesus. It causes tension. And so, just like David and Jonathan's covenant relationship to each other required this remarkable, uncommon loyalty, so does ours with Jesus, because Jesus demands it of us. 
But it's not just one-sided. Jesus' loyalty to us is also beyond remarkable. I want you to look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. This is probably one of my favorite passages of Scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 2. You want to know what Jesus' loyalty and faithfulness to us is? You can look at the end of Romans 28 and see that nothing can tear us out of His hand. That's pretty amazing loyalty there. But this is remarkable, this passage. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Just three verses. It says, It is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with Him, think of that as the word sin. So since we've died with Him, he will also, or we will also live with Him. So it basically says, if you die with Christ... You'll live with Him. Then it says, if we endure, remain faithful, if we suffer through with Him, it says, He will also, or we will also reign with Him. That's the reward. Okay? So He basically says, if you died with Him, that's your salvation, you'll live with Him. Okay? That's secure. He says, but if you also endure, that has to do with remaining faithful through suffering. It doesn't mean abandoning your faith as much as, you know, some Christians, when you look at them, you don't even know they're Christians. They might be saved. You look at them and they go, yeah, but they're just not all that faithful. They're just, But maybe they're saved. Maybe We don't know, right? He says, well, if you endure, if you're one of those types of Christians that will endure that hardship and suffer with Christ, much like Paul says, there's a reward. You will reign with Christ. That's your crown, okay? But then he says this. If we deny him, it's a little tricky here because the deny there is in a structure where it points back to endure, meaning you don't endure is another way to translate that. So, so if you don't endure, if you don't suffer with Christ, if you just sort of get saved and stuck, as Earl Rodmacher says, then what happens? Well, he'll deny you what? Deny you the reign, the rewards. Paul refers to some Christians in 1 Corinthians where he basically says, they're saved as if through the fire. they got nothing in terms of rewards. But they're still saved. Why? Because of the way they live their lives. So what we have here in this passage is it says, if you're saved, you get life. But if you take it that extra step and you suffer with him and you serve him well, you get that well done, good and faithful servant that you'll be rewarded with reigning with Christ. But if you don't do that, then Christ will deny you that reign. won't take your salvation, but won't reward you. But then look at the very next verse, or the very next phrase. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. That's a tough passage to work through. But ultimately what it says is Jesus Christ still is loyal to you. That's why Romans chapter 8 at the end says nothing can tear us out of his hands. Jesus Christ's love, loyalty, and faithfulness to us is uncommon. I think about Peter walking, you know, Peter denying him three times. And what does Jesus do? Meets him on the shore. Okay? Takes him for a walk. Doesn't let him get away with it. But he holds on to, to Peter. Didn't say, you know, you denied me three times, Peter. No. Jesus was faithful to Peter. So what we find here is that just like Jonathan and David's covenant had this uncommon loyalty built into it, we see that reflected in our relationship with Jesus Christ as well. And we see that reflected in God and Israel. We just went through the book of Judges how long ago? How many times did we see, see the Israelites fall into sin, God have to chastise them, but still rescue them? Every, how many times did God, did God not do that? How many times did God say, oh, that's it, one too many times? No, we wouldn't have made it to, second, or to 1 Samuel, would we? Because it would have all been done at the end of Judges. But God stayed faithful 
to Israel because his loyalty is uncommon. Let's move on. The third thing I see in this is that the covenant between David and Jonathan came with a cost. Came with a cost, verses 18 through 34. Jonathan devises his plan to protect and to warn David after this banquet, if you will. So we're going to read verses 18 through 23. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. When you have stayed for three days, and you shall go down and quickly come to the place where you hid yourself on that eventful day, and you shall remain by the stone of Ezel. I will shoot three arrows to the side as though I shot at a target. And behold, I will send the lad, saying, Go find the arrows. If I specifically say to the lad, Behold, the arrows are, be- are on the side of you, get them, then come, for there is safety for you, and no harm as the Lord lives. But if I say to the youth, Behold, the arrows are beyond you, go, for the Lord has sent you away. And for the agreement of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David will go out and hide in the field. Maybe behind a big rock. We don't know. And then Jonathan, after he finds out what happens at the meal. Remember, he's going to go to the meal. If Saul gets really angry, he knows that Saul's going to kill David. If Saul's like, oh, cool. Good thing you went to see his family. Everything's good. So Jonathan's going to take that information. He's going to go out in the field where David is hiding, and he's going to draw three arrows. And he's going to shoot all three of those arrows in the same place. One option is to shoot it to the side. So he's going to shoot to the side if everything's good with Saul. So he'll pop those off. He'll then tell the boy that's with him, go out there and get the arrows. And if David sees where the arrows go and sees the lad run out and they're to the side of him, then Jonathan says, you know everything's good and you can come. But he says, if I shoot the arrows beyond the stone, if I shoot them beyond you, and I tell the lad, go get them, they're beyond David. As soon as David sees that lad run towards him and run right past him to get the arrows, David will know, Saul's out to get me. And Jonathan tells him at that point, Just leave. Just leave. So that's the plan. That's what they do. So we see in the passage what happens. So David hid in the field, verse 24, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat at his seat as usual, the seat by the wall. Then Jonathan rose up and Abner sat down, that's Saul's right-hand man, sat down at his side, but David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul did not speak anything that day, for he thought, is it an accident? He, David, is not clean. Maybe something's wrong. He's filled with some sin of some kind, therefore he can't come to the festival. Surely he's not clean, he says. It came about the next day, the second day of the new moon, that David's place was empty. So Saul said to Jonathan, his son, Why has the son of Jesse not come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan then answered Saul, David earnestly asked to leave of me to go to Bethlehem. For he said, Please let me go, since our family has a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to attend. And now, if I have found favor in your sight, please let me get away, that I may see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. So what do you suppose is going to happen now? You guys know where this is going, right? Verse 30, Then Saul's anger burned against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your father or your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Therefore now send and bring him to me, for he must surely die. 
But Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said to him, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Then Saul hurled his spear at him. Does that sound familiar? And to strike him down. So Jonathan knew that his father had decided to put David to death. It's probably the spear sticking in the wall that gave him the clue. Then Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and did not eat food on the second day of the new moon for he was grieved over David because his father had dishonored him. So this turns out exactly as we might expect. What's the cost here? Well, first off, you see here Saul pretty much disowns Jonathan. When he refers to him as a son of a perverse and rebellious woman, in essence what he's saying is, you're not my son. He says that he's a shame to his mother's nakedness. I actually prefer the way the NIV translates this, um, of the mother who bore you. Mother's nakedness, there's a reference to birth, and so he basically says, you're ashamed of the woman who gave birth to you, Jonathan. He also says, you know what? You're a disgrace because you'll never inherit the kingdom. You're giving up. Who does that? Who gives up the right to the throne, Jonathan? Are you an idiot? That's a disgrace. No king does that. No son of the king would ever consider something like that. And so he mocks him and he shames him here. That's the cost for doing what was right. Remember Jesus' words about loyalty to him being greater than that of father and mother and brother and sister, son and daughter? And that's what we see here in Jonathan. His loyalty to David cost him something with his father. Jonathan refuses. Saul tries to kill him. Even takes it up a notch. I'd say that's a pretty significant cost for Jonathan's loyalty. I love the fact here that it says that Jonathan expressed anger. You know where my anger would probably be directed? At the guy who just tried to kill me. The guy that just stuck a spear in the wall. The guy who just mocked me, ridiculed me, called me shameful, said that I was a disgrace to my mother. I'd be angry at that dude for what he did to me. Why does it say in the text here that Jonathan's angered? Did you catch that? Go back and look at the text for me. Somebody tell me what it says. Why was Saul, or I'm sorry, Jonathan angered? Yeah, the NASB says because he had dishonored David. Jonathan is upset, not because of what his dad did to him, but because it was a dishonor to David, the Lord's anointed. That's fascinating to me. That goes back to his loyalty to David. So just as Jonathan paid a steep price for his covenant with David, Jesus also paid a steep price for his covenant with us, didn't he? Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says this, But God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, what did Christ do for us? It says He died for us. The covenant relationship that we have with Jesus costs Him something and costs us pretty much nothing. In the same way that Jonathan bore the brunt of the cost of his relationship, his covenant with David. But there's the other side of that. What's expected of us? Is there a cost to us? I would say little compared to what Christ paid. But there is some cost to us. Jesus warned his disciples to count the cost before following him. 
He told us he would, we would be hated by the world because of him. He said we'd be persecuted and some of us even martyred because of our relationship with him. So there's a cost to us as well. There always is. David did have some cost, you know. For his faithfulness to the Lord, he's run out of town. He's supposed to be the Lord's anointed. In fact, he's faithfully serving the king, doing everything he can to help Saul be successful, and yet he's run out. He's on the run. Loses his livelihood. It's all the fear and anxiety of having to care for his family out on the run. In fact, I think I counted it up two nights ago. I think there were 15 attempts total in David's life by Saul in the whole book. How would you like to live your life that way? There's a cost involved with that, being on the run. And so David and Jonathan's covenant had a cost associated with it. God's relationship with Israel and his relationship with us had a cost associated with it. That's the cost of his son, the willingness to do that. How about the next one? The covenant between David and Jonathan assured a certain measure of peace. This is a good one. Let's look at verses 35 through 40. Now it came about in the morning that Jonathan went out into the field for the appointment with David, and a little lad was with him. And he said to the lad, Run, find now the arrows which I am about to shoot. As the lad was running, he shot an arrow past him. When the lad reached the place of the arrow which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called out after the lad and said, It is not the arrow. And your heart almost sinks here beyond you. I'm sure David was hoping the arrows would be to the side. I'm sure that Jonathan really wanted to shoot the arrows to the side. (laughs) But instead he had to shoot them beyond David because he knew his father was trying to kill David. So he tells the lad, go get the arrows. They're beyond you. And Jonathan called after the lad, hurry, be quick and do not stay. And Jonathan's lad picked up the arrows and came to his master. But the lad was not aware of anything. Only Jonathan and David knew about the matter or the plan. Little boy just thinks he's out there picking up arrows. He doesn't know that David's hiding out there. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to his lad and he said to him, Go, bring them to the city. When the lad was gone, David rose from the south side and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed each other and they wept together, but David wept the more. Jonathan said to David, Go in safety, and as much as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord will be between me and you, and between my descendants and your descendants forever. Then he rose and departed while Jonathan went to the city. So Jonathan warns David by shooting the arrows beyond David. David knows that Saul's going to kill him, or try to again. It's not going to get any better for him. I love David's response here. It says that David came out, fell on his face, and bowed before Jonathan. When you, there's actually, when you look at um, some of the literature and stuff in the ancient Near East, you learn certain things. And one of the things we know about this is falling on your face and bowing was actually a way to expect, or to express subservience and loyalty to somebody else. We've got a whole series of what are called Armenian letters that describe this. And so what David is doing is he's placing himself in subservience to Jonathan. David's supposed to be the next king. Jonathan has already demonstrated by taking off his robes and his royal garments that he should be bowing down to David. But instead, David bows down to loyalty to Jonathan. And just for good measure, he does it three times. As an expression of his loyalty and his devotion and his subservience to Jonathan. Kissing was also an expression of farewell in the ancient Near East, as weeping was. 
Obviously, the weeping here indicates the anguish and emotion of the situation. You know, we've been told multiple times now that David was loved by Jonathan more than he loved his own life. His devotion was deep, was rich. But you notice here it says that David wept the more. I think David realized what Jonathan had given up. I think he knew that as he was separating here that he probably wasn't going to see Jonathan again. In fact, they only see each other one more time in the whole book. I think they knew that. I think David probably also knew that Jonathan was not going to be off the hook going back home. There's no indication that, I mean, Jonathan dies in battle. um, But I'm sure Dad wasn't happy with him. David knew that. David was probably concerned about Jonathan going back home and would Saul try to kill him again. And so he wept all the more over this. But you notice what happens in verse 43? It says that Jonathan, actually it might be uh, verse 42, is that right? Yeah, it's actually the second half of verse 42. Jonathan says this, The Lord will be between me and you, and between my descendants and your descendants forever. Then he rose and departed, while Jonathan went in to the city. He says in the beginning of verse 42, Go in peace, or go in safety. Those words, I think, are rather remarkable as well, because... He's bidding David peace as he leaves, but there's no peace for David. Again, you know, up until this time, there's maybe six attempts. He's got at least nine more to go with Saul trying to kill him. So, what kind of peace could Jonathan be talking about here? I think it's this that no matter what David faced, he would always know that there would be at least one element of peace somewhere in his life. And it would be with Jonathan. He could always reflect on that as he's out on the hills and as, as Saul is trying to kill him, as he's got his dad. In fact, Saul's whole entire army, at least 3,000 people were out to kill, kill David, to take his life. He would go into cities and those cities would, would give him up. So he'd have to flee to the next city. There's no peace. There's only anxiety, but he would always be able to look back and know that I've got peace with Jonathan. Even though he may not be there physically with Jonathan, that's the piece that Jonathan mentions here. He says, Go in safety, go in peace, inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord. The Lord will be between me and you, and between my descendants and your descendants forever. David, or I'm sorry, Jonathan was referencing the peace that would exist between him and Jonathan. He was able to depart from David and give him a certain sense, a certain measure of peace. David, no matter where you go, no matter what my father tries to do, know that there's always peace between me and you because of what the Lord has done and because of the covenant relationship that we have. Isn't it interesting how that peace reflects the peace that we have Think about that in your life. Where is the one area where you are absolutely guaranteed peace no matter what else happens? Anybody want to volunteer where that might be? There's one area where we are absolutely convinced that we have peace. And that's the peace that we have with God that's available through Jesus Christ. And that, it, it's there regardless of what else happens. We think about the the um, the Wittens and just their lives being rocked when Walker was diagnosed with a very serious form of cancer. You think they had any peace at that moment? 
That became their world. But we've all seen how they have reflected Christ that and the it's it's shocking the peace and they will tell you this that has been given to them in Christ through this difficult time. Now God's done some amazing things. Walker had a setback this week with some things, but as best we can tell, the Lord has been healing him of his cancer. It's pretty obvious. But it's been pretty rocky. Times filled with with anything but peace. And yet there's this amazing peace that transcends all understanding that the Lord has showered them with. Okay? I think about just uh, the stuff that we go through on a daily basis. You know? Um, The ups and downs of life. I don't know that we... I won't ask for a raise of hands, but how many of you would, if you, you know, would categorize your, li- your lives as always filled with peace? You know, am I the only one that probably wouldn't? You know, it's funny because I, I oftentimes um, feel really bad when I share. I mean, I've had medical issues for years now. I think it's, I sometimes think it's my thorn in the flesh. You know, um, I think I've told you about the throat issues I've been having recently, and. I've been having trouble walking recently because of my hip and stuff, and I really wonder sometimes, like, I'm just tired of this. I'm just absolutely tired of this, you know? I'm only 53. I shouldn't be struggling with this stuff. But, God may or may not deal with those things. But I've always been able to say, you know what? At least I know that if I can just survive till I'm 70 or 75, I got nothing to worry about. I look forward to the day I get to see see God because there's no fear there's no anxiety there's only peace because of the covenant relationship that I have with Jesus Christ amen and so when we look at Jonathan's covenant with the Lord we'll wrap it up with this when we look at this relationship this story is not just about how really cool the relationship was between David and Jonathan or about what neat individuals they were. It's not even about David. It's not even about Jonathan. What this text is about is the relationship that they had together and how it reflects God's relationship to Israel and our relationship to Jesus Christ. Let me just rehash these real quick. The covenant between David and Jonathan provided certainty in uncertain times. Does it not for us? Absolutely. It is the only thing we can be certain of is that Jesus Christ loves us and will care for us. The covenant between David and Jonathan reflected uncommon loyalty. Is that not true with our relationship with Christ? Maybe our, maybe our loyalty to Him kind of wanes sometimes. Maybe we don't always behave like we should, you know. But His is unwavering, uncommon, and remarkable towards us because He doesn't change. The covenant between David and Jonathan came with a cost. Is that not true? I can't... I, I am blown away when I think about the cost, what God did for us. Especially considering that for almost nine months of my life, I was begging for God to do something in my life, and I just... They, Bob Kegel, Steve remembers him, Beagle Lips Kegel, literally begging to share the gospel with me, and I know it, and I don't want to hear it. Until nine months later when I finally broke down. God beat me up until I listened, you know? And so the fact that he's willing to put his son on the cross, there's a cost associated with that, but at the same token, there's a cost for us. We have to weigh the cost. Jesus expects that of us. The last thing we covered was that the covenant between David and Jonathan assured a certain measure of peace. And once again, we see that reflected in our relationship with God. Because of the new covenant, the covenant between Jesus Christ and us as believers, 
assures us a measure of peace. No matter what else happens. In fact, we're told that the peace of God transcends all understanding. The greatest example I have with that, and you guys probably get sick of me hearing this, is when we had Kimberly in the hospital thinking she had cancer, going through the surgery. I will be real frank. I, I, I was blown away by the peace that I experienced for that week waiting to hear whether or not she was cancerous or not. And the only way I can describe that is it must have been the Lord. I still remember sitting in the hospital and typing emails out to people and this sense of going, wow, why am I not crushed right now? Yeah, I was struggling, I was sad, but I wasn't crushed. That's not like me. God assures us a certain amount of peace because of our covenant relationship with Jesus.